giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And I'm your other host, Victoria Guido. And with us today is Joe Barb, executive director and founder of LGBTQ Plus Family Connection Center, with a mission to strengthen and empower all youth, however they identify, to overcome obstacles by providing housing, supportive counseling, community education, and advocacy. Joe, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Wonderful. So you started the center over two years ago. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice to when you were first starting out, what would you tell yourself? Wow. Very similar to for-profit companies, having the tenacity to keep knocking on doors, uh, never accepting no for an answer, and understanding that tenacity is everything. Uh, you know, nothing happens without continuing the fight every day. Great. And how did you first identify that need for the center? A million years ago, when I was a late teenager, my parents had a pastor in their church suggest to them that in order to bring me back to God and back to their church, that they should cut me off financially. You know, I was a young freshman in college, prod me in that direction. So my parents took the advice and I found myself in my second semester of college with no funding. The check for the second semester had been canceled for my family. And I didn't know what to do, so I called a friend in South Dakota that we had met on vacation. And she said, you know what? I have an apartment building here. I just had an apartment come vacant. Why don't you move to South Dakota? And then we'll work on everything else. So that lived experience kind of prodded the whole thing. And then um, meeting a youth who had been uh, displaced from home for being a trans youth caused the rest. Well, I'm really sorry for that personal experience that you had, but it, it's pretty powerful and you know that you've gone on to help others in similar situations is really admirable. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. And my lived experience, um, honestly, I was with stability within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. The more I became comfortable and complacent in my life and then met somebody who wasn't, it brought me back to that. And then just looking at statistics, looking at how youth end up in a houseless situation created something in me that I, I had to address. Yeah. So you had your own lived experience and that connection to your community, which helped you identify that need and, and start out on the center. Did you find there were a lot of resources for building nonprofits there isn't. And it's really something that when you go into it, you you believe that when you create a, a nonprofit and you you know finish that application, you send it into the IRS and you get approval, that you put a great idea out there and that the community will respond and that everyone will immediately jump on it and say, you know what, you're right, this is needed. We need housing. We need to make sure that youth are safe. And that's not the way it works. It doesn't work that way at all. It's a lot of connections and community and getting involved and putting the statistics and the numbers out there so that people are aware of it. But it's mostly connecting the stories. Um, the more youth that I've met and worked with and connected them to a story and told their story, the more people respond. Right. And so what have you found to be the most impactful in, in sharing that story and in managing um, that content to get to the right people who can help you with this need. 
The most impactful part is people just aren't aware. We've we've all know that there's a homeless population. No matter where you live, you know, there's a homeless population and you know, it impacts communities. But what we aren't aware of is we all typically believe that the government is funding these things and it's being taken care of and that maybe those people just chose homelessness and don't realize that the resources are very limited until you know those resources are able to show a data of need that person may not be counted that you saw in the corner you're pretty active socially online i think where i first saw you was through a mutual connection on linkedin and your post started to be in my feed and i you know liked and subscribed i guess how much of the awareness that you're putting out there is coming from you know, social networks and online versus in-person and local communities? I'd say it's probably a good mixture of both. Um, locally, obviously, I'm deeply involved with other service providers. I'm, I'm involved with local government. I'm on any kind of board that you can think of that impacts youth homelessness. So there, there's that within my community. But having those LinkedIn, just this weekend, we had our pride. And at our pride, someone walked over to me, started talking at our booth, and he said, well, I know you from LinkedIn. I noticed your picture with um, <laughs> Sylvan Lake behind you from your LinkedIn, and, and I just had to come over and meet you and say hi. And I thought, how impactful is social media that someone who lives in Florida happened to be in South Dakota, came to pride, and recognized me from a picture? Wow. Yeah, it really makes our world feel a little smaller sometimes, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And the problem of youth homelessness and LGBTQ plus homelessness is very complex. And I think other nonprofit founders might be interested in how you decide what services you're going to provide and how you evaluate to see which ones are the most impactful. We did things kind of backwards. So I, I formed the, the board of directors and Typically what happens with the board of directors is they want to become your advisors. And I thought, you know, these people have great professional experience. We have doctors, we have PhDs, we have scientists literally, um, you know, on our board. And those people don't have the lived experience. So I thought, who do we go to to develop, you know, programming and supports for people that um, are in need? And the answer, you know, was glaringly clear. It had to be the people who were in need. So I formed uh, a youth action board with the state continuum of care, and it comprises of youth ages 13 to 24 who have lived experience. We, we keep it at um, 66% have to have lived experience, and technically most of them have even much more than that, but we uh, connect with them through service providers who you know assist youth and those were the people that we used to formulate what they needed, decide what was most beneficial to help them during vulnerable points, and then help them get out of uh, situations. Right. And I think that user experience, that experience bringing that into the products and services that you're creating uh, just makes a lot of sense for us. And that's what we bring into our design as well. Yeah. I mean, we we do it in almost every industry. Whatever you create, whatever product you create, whether it's something tangible that you hold or whether it's a service, you bring in a test group. And that test group typically is people that you're seeking to utilize or buy your service or your product. And in doing that, we end up developing a better product. It's the same thing with a nonprofit. Um, we had to get the voice of those who we would be serving in order to make sure that we were doing what they needed, not what we thought as 
professional people or our personal opinions uh, was the the way forward. Was there something as you were talking to people and learning that surprised you? Probably the same thing that everyone develops is an opinion of homelessness. We all think that people that experience homelessness, it's typically through some self-inflicted issue, typically drugs and alcohol come to mind, and uh, some type of cause that brought you there that you had influence on. And I've learned that most of the kids that we serve had no influence on their homelessness other than to be born where they were or to who they were born. A lot of our youth are coming from, oh, they've lived in shelters um, or foster care or aged out of foster care. It just changed my dichotomy of thinking that we would be serving people that had addiction problems or alcohol problems when in in case of, you know, the youth currently we're at, I think, 68 youth served. I've only met one youth that had a previous addiction. It's really just that lack of a safety net and all it takes is your family not supporting you or and not having a safety net. Absolutely. And that's just it. You said it very well. Most of us, when we have an incident in our life that we need some help because there's a vulnerability, we have people around us that we go back to. Uh, We have either family or close friends that we can say, you know what? Um, I lost my job. I need a little bit of help here. Or this medical incident happened and could you assist us? And we get a response from our family or friends that typically is supportive and helps us find a way where a lot of youth, especially youth that experience homelessness, they don't have that connection to family. So that's where we need to bring community to support them. Right. And do you find there are unique challenges to supporting youth experiencing homelessness in the Midwest, in South Dakota, where you are, versus in uh, more urban areas? Absolutely. Um, Carl Cicliano is my TA advisor. He created the Alley Forney Center in New York, which is the largest housing support for homeless youth. For uh, They specifically only target LGBTQ youth in the United States. And in talking to him and then in looking at our demographics, it was very different. For them, people in larger cities will just seek out their services. They learn about it word of mouth. They find out that there's a shelter in a place. Here, our homeless population is much more hidden. And typically what happens here is, you know, youth will kind of gather together and it will be six or eight of them who become friendly and they will try to support each other by one of them will get a hotel and then six or eight of them will live together or they're doubled up in one person's apartment. Six or eight people live in somebody else's apartment, which truly isn't um, housed because it's not their place. And uh, they try to support each other. So they're very hidden in our communities. It's unfortunate. You know, there's a lot of stuff happening in the U.S. and worldwide with legislation being passed now anti-transgender. I think South Dakota was the first state in the country to pass an anti-transgender bill this year. Mm -hmm. Are there particular challenges to doing the work that you do in today's climate? Accessing um, mental health services. Uh, We had to overcome that obstacle by forming relationships with um, counseling services that we could make sure that any youth, whether they were insured or underinsured or uninsured, could immediately access mental health. And that took quite a bit of work on our part in order to make that happen it should be easy. It should be easy to access mental health. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges because 
I could stabilize anyone tomorrow with either a hotel or a house or an apartment. But if you don't have mental health to help with what got you there, you know, you're, you're still living in trauma. If you're living in trauma, how can you focus on things like um, going back to school or having a career or, you know, what even tomorrow means for you because you're living in trauma today? So absolutely, to answer your question, um, mental health. And is that a matter of providers not wanting to provide services or not being able to pay for it? Not being able to pay for it. There are things that you can access if you're uninsured or underinsured, um, if you meet the guidelines to, uh, you know, to get into mental health access. The problem with that is if you need help today, that's a process. Um, we didn't want, we wanted to skip the process. We wanted to make sure that if you walked into our drop-in center today, that this afternoon I could have you with a therapist of your choice. Mm -hmm. Now that you have funding, it's time to design, build, and ship the most impactful MVP that wows customers now and can scale in the future. ThoughtBot Liftoff brings you the most reliable, cross-functional team of product experts to mitigate risk and set you up for long-term success. As your trusted, experienced technical partner, we'll help launch your new product and guide you into a future-forward business that takes advantage of today's new technologies and agile best practices. Make the right decisions for tomorrow, today. Get in touch at thoughtbot.com slash liftoff. You have a website, you collect donations online, and we definitely want to link all of that stuff in the, the show notes. Um, it'll be there, and I hope people contribute. But when it comes to like the tactical stuff uh, on the sort of product and business side, are there particular tools or resources you were able to draw upon to put together online donations, the website, that kind of thing? As far as platforms, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some great platforms that, you know, have been built specifically for nonprofits in order to help get the word out and help fundraise. Um, that for us hasn't been the primary. Um, in this type of nonprofit, typically most of our donations are not donations or grants. There are things that we, like I just spent two years on uh, on a grant that um, is quite substantial, but it was two years of work, literally 40 hours a week for two years. So there's those tools, there's the GoFundMe, and there's all kinds of tools for um, sharing on social media in order to get people to um, donate. They're great, but you have to have a large circle in order to utilize those. And you have to have people that are willing to do that as well. So I don't think we have the tool that's the best tool yet socially. What would something that was better look like for you? It's more getting corporations and businesses and private companies involved in what a lot of companies are already doing. They will seek from their employees giving initiatives and they will seek information to, you know, what does the company want to support as a community because that's what their employees care about. I think those things um, have a more sustainable development and a more sustainable footprint for nonprofits that when organizations get involved that are private and then offer to their employees a way to donate, that works best. Yeah, for ThoughtBot, to honor Pride Month, we collected a series of donations that we were going to make, and it was team suggestion uh, because we have teams all over the place. We wanted to have a local impact. And then when it came to actually doing those donations, I think we had 10 to 20 
organizations that we wanted to donate. Not a huge amount of money to each one, but hopefully it makes a difference. And like the way that we needed to do that, you know, an individual a person at Thoughtbot needed to go on and either find the donate link, the place to do it. And some of them didn't even have it. And we wanted to, you know, it's a maybe a place in Brazil or something, and we need to get them the money somehow, wiring it or something. And so that was a lot, a fair amount of manual work to figure that out and then to make the payments. Yeah. And I think because it goes along with, we're learning as organizations that we have to take care of the social and emotional part of um, employees just as well as we do the the work environment. It's part of the work environment. So I think that that kind of goes back to HR, which is my background. HR should kind of look at those things in advance and find local you know, nonprofits to support local ideas. And then maybe some national ones as well. We all know like a Trevor Project and some of the great broader campaigns that do a lot of really good work and have that ready so that when somebody joins your company, you can show them, say, hey, by the way, these are some local organizations that we can do a payroll deduction for if you like, or we can buy annual contributions and let the employees see that the company cares about the local area and also cares about things on a national platform that impact employees. Yeah. I, I love that. I think that's a great way to involve corporations in, in giving back and connecting employees to their local communities and the local groups that need support. Is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners in order to support the LGBTQ plus center or in general? The majority of our youth are LGBTQ plus. Um, and that's because statistically across the United States, the majority of youth seeking housing services um, unaccompanied um, are LGBTQ plus um, up to 40%. But we don't turn away any youth. It doesn't matter how they identify. doesn't matter what their circumstances are. The only um, thing that we ask is, uh, you know, if you're telling us you're homeless, then we're going to assist in that we do have an age criteria of 16 to 24 because that matches the federal guidelines for the programming that we're in through federal dollars. So other than that, I mean, we still would help anyone of any age, but that's the big thing to know is that we help any youth however they identify. And what could listeners do? Um, obviously, you know, on our website, or look into your community as well and see what is a support in your area and find something that um, you can contribute it to. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Do you have any questions for me or Chad? I think that uh, what you're doing is great. I, I like that you um, are thinking of nonprofits as you know a company as well, because a lot of people view it differently when it's actually a company. You know, you have to figure out a way to sustain, uh, you know, funding and, and bring money in just like any other organization in order to do the work. Yeah. I, I think that's a common misconception that people have. And I, I'm sure it's not the case with you and your organization, but I like to remind people that nonprofit really just means <laughs> that it can't show a profit. So there are lots of nonprofits out there that just end up, you know, spending all of the money that they have. That's really all that it technically needs to mean sometimes. And you bring up a great point. There, There's an IRS website um, to look up any nonprofit organization and you can look at how they spend their money. I do that all the time before I make a donation because, uh, you know, we've all heard those stories of CEOs who make, you know, 13 million a year or whatever crazy number. You can always look up any organization and see how they spend their money. 
Yeah, that's a really good tip for people to do before you get involved with an organization with donations or or your time and really making sure it matches your values and and that kind of thing. Great. All right. I think we're about at time. So with that, I will wrap us up and let everyone know you can subscribe to the show and find notes along with the complete transcript for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. You can find me on Twitter at cpytel. And you can find me on Twitter at victoriousd. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.